Good morning, and again, Happy New Year. My name is George Davis. Thank you for being a part of our services, whether you're in person or you're online with us this weekend. Uh, my guess is uh, maybe you're still a bit in recovery mode, depending on how active your Christmas season was. For some of us, there was travel, lots of family, so maybe you've taken a deep breath as we've started the new year. Last weekend, even though it was uh, obviously New Year's Eve, last weekend, Rose and I kind of decompressed toward the middle of the night. We sat down in front of the TV just to watch a movie and relax. So, I'm, you know, I'm sitting down on our sofa and, and our dog, Winston, our English lab, jumps up right beside me and I recline the seat a little bit. The movie starts and has this happened to you? About 20 minutes into the movie, I fall asleep. And I woke up with about five minutes of the movie left. I looked over at my wife. She smiled, looked back at me, and simply said, you both were snoring. <laughs> he does snore, too. He's just like his owner. And all I can tell you is it was, it was a wonderful ending to the movie. <laughs> they lived happily ever after. But you know what? I have no idea. I have no idea what happened in the meantime because I fell asleep. I... Another way of thinking of it, I lost the plot. You know, that is, that is funny when it happens just watching a movie, and maybe some of you are notorious for doing that. You go to movies and you fall asleep, you lose the plot. It's funny when it happens in those kinds of situations. It's not so funny when it happens in other dimensions of our lives. For instance, maybe, maybe you're here and the truth is you've, <laughs> you've lost the plot in your work, right? You, maybe, maybe you got a, this new job or a new responsibility and you were so excited, you were so energetic, enthused about the responsibilities you were going to have, but over time it, it, it turned out not to be as it was presented to you. Or over time you kind of got, kind of got in the backwash of the political realities of your work environment. And you just kind of lost a sense of focus, lost a sense of direction. And the truth is, right now, you're just putting in your time. Maybe even you're thinking about what could be next, what could be different. And in some sense, you've, you've lost the plot. That can be true in, in our workplace. It can be true in relationships. For instance, may, maybe you're married and... and and even right now, or there have been seasons where, in a real sense, you've, you've kind of lost the plot in your relationship. You, you know, you started out with such dreams and aspirations and goals. You made those commitments to one another as you stood before a pastor years ago. But, you know, life got complicated and things just kind of happened. And in some ways, you've kind of just drifted apart and that sense of direction, that sense of shared purpose that's just kind of melted away. In a real sense, you've, you've lost the plot. And even as it can happen in a workplace situation, even as it can happen in certain relationships, it can also happen spiritually. It can also happen in our relationship with God. It can also happen for those of us who are followers of Jesus. And that's exactly what we're going to see as we begin a new series today. 
This morning we're starting a series in the book of Hebrews. This is going to take us to Easter. And as we begin this series, I, just, just a couple of words of introduction. First of all, I think it's important to acknowledge when we come to the book of Hebrews, there is so much that we don't know. Hebrews is, is different from other books in the New Testament. For instance, right, you read the letters of Paul and there's a greeting at the front. There's, there's no greeting at the front here. There, there are greetings at the end of the book. But in reality, I think Hebrews really reads more like a sermon than it does an ancient letter. So we're not sure who wrote the book. That's been an ongoing debate for hundreds of years. We're not exactly sure who the recipients were. So there is a lot that we don't know. And as I said, in a real sense, the, the author writes the book in such a way that I think it's, it's intended to be read as a sermon. It's like he is putting himself directly in front of the ancient audience that is receiving this letter. And in a real sense, now as we go through this book, he is putting himself in front of us to say, here's the message that I want you to hear. Now, even though there is so much about this book that we don't know Here's something we do know, and that is this. The Christians who were receiving this book were, in a real sense, in danger of losing the plot. And here's what I mean by that. There's evidence that, that in some ways life had gotten complicated for them. Some apparently had experienced persecution because they were followers of Jesus. In other ways, I think their lives had become complex. So now they are in danger of drifting spiritually, of becoming disinterested, disillusioned, disobedient. And in a real sense, this letter, this sermon is written to a group of people who are in danger of floundering when they should be flourishing. It's written to a group of people in danger of losing the plot. So what is the author's response? How is he going to kind of speak into the lives of these people? Well, in simple terms, his response is this. Hey, don't lose the plot. I mean, he will acknowledge along the way that life can get complicated and complex. He's going to state that. But he tells them this. Don't lose sight of the fact that you are on a journey. You are on a journey of following Jesus. You're on this journey with Jesus. In fact, at two points in this letter, he's going to describe Jesus as the pioneer of our faith, right? Jesus is the one leading the way, and you need to see yourself as part of this group that is following Jesus. Later in the book, he'll say, look, you're, you're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And now for us, he would say, you are surrounded by generations of people who have been on this journey of following Jesus before you. Now you need to run your leg of the race well. And you need to run your leg of the race well by fixing your eyes on Jesus. So don't lose the plot. Keep moving forward. Don't lose the plot. That's going to be the message of the book of Hebrews. Now let me ask you a question. We're starting a new year, 2024 is here, ready or not, and my question to you is, if you are a follower of Jesus, do you see your life in these terms? Do you see yourself as, you know what, I'm, 
You know, I'm, I'm part of this community of people, and we're following Jesus. We're in this journey of following Jesus, and there are next steps and new things to learn, and there's a new season of the, the adventure all along the way. Is that how you see your life? This week, and uh, kind of reading different things all related to starting a new year, I came across a, a kind of a classic blog post by an author named Don Whitney. And it's, the idea is questions that you should ask yourself at the new year. And there's some, to be honest with you, there's some really deep probing questions that he asked. Let me just give you a couple of the questions that he asked. First of all, what's one thing you can do this year to increase your enjoyment of God? Now just think on that for a moment. Maybe you've never thought in those terms, but it's a powerful question. Here's the one that, that really <laughs> kind of grabbed hold of me. He asked, what's the single biggest time waster in your life, and how can you redeem the time? For many of us, it's probably that little device in our pockets, but how would, how would you answer that question? Here's another question. In which spiritual rhythm do you want to make progress this year? I really resonated with this question because, you know, during this year, in different ways, we're encouraging you to develop spiritual habits and spiritual rhythms. And even as we're going to go through the book of Hebrews, we're going to be encouraging you to get into Hebrews on your own. Here's the last of his questions that I'll share. For whose salvation will you pray most fervently this year? Now, as I read these questions, as you read these questions, how do you hear them? Do they just feel weighty, intimidating, legalistic? Maybe. Yet, here's the deal. When, I think when we, when we see ourselves on this journey, we're on this journey with one another, and we're on this journey of following Jesus. When we begin to see ourselves in that framework, I think we hear these questions differently. We hear them as an invitation to keep moving forward. And as we're, we're going to see, that, that's the challenge, the encouragement of this entire book. Now, with that in mind, um, let's now just start unpacking how this author is going to encourage these ancient Christians and also encourage and, and challenge us. And to do that, let's come back to the opening paragraph. You looked at it a few moments ago. I want to come back to this now. It's an important part of, of Hebrews because in many ways, the opening paragraph of this book is going to introduce us to themes that the author is going to develop later in his sermon. So with that in mind, let me read it again for you. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he prov had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Wow. There's a lot here, and we're going to discover that is true throughout this book. This book is deeply rich in imagery, Old Testament allusions, and theological reflection. So we're going to see that all along the way. 
But as we began, I, I want you to notice, I think in a real sense, as, as the author is addressing this early group in danger of losing the plot, as he's addressing us now, he's answering a couple of questions right at the beginning. First of all, he's answering kind of the when question. That is, I think for the author, he wants us to see, look, if, if you're going to avoid losing the plot, you need to kind of understand when you are living in the overall storyline of what God is doing. Now notice kind of, again, in simple terms, how he begins the letter. He said, look, in the past, right, God has spoken. In the past, God has spoken through things like the prophets. But now he has spoken ultimately through his son, Jesus Christ. Now in saying that, among other things, what the author is doing, he's giving us a very simple outline of the storyline of God's plan of rescue and restoration. Furthermore, in highlighting the fact that God has spoken in the past this way and now more recently this way, he's, he's highlighting the fact that, that central to the storyline of what God is doing is the fact that he's in pursuit of us. That's why he's been speaking all along the way. Because he's, he's pursuing a relationship with you and with me. Now, as you think about kind of how the author kind of answers this win question, and, he, and he's saying, look, I want you to understand now where you stand in this storyline. Let, let me just highlight a couple of implications of how the book begins here. One of the implications is this. I think how the book begins helps us understand the Bible and read the Bible well. Let me explain it this way. A few years ago, a, a guy named uh, A.J. Jacobs did this fascinating project, right? He set out to keep all the commandments of the Bible for a year, and then he wrote up his experience in this book, The Year of Living Biblically, and frankly, some of it is really funny. I mean, you know, trying to keep certain Old Testament food laws that that are, are, are obscure. I mean, there's some funny things to that. It even became a short-lived uh, television series. And, and yet, despite all of his efforts, this project is actually a classic example of losing the plot. Because, you see, if, if you approach the Bible simply, you know what the Bible is? It's just a collection of laws and rules or maybe some good moral principles, and that's kind of how you engage, you know, the Bible. Think about the Bible. You know certain of the stories, and that, that's kind of the, your view. It's just this random kind of collection of these things that, that you, you can try hard to keep or these things that may be good for you. If that's how you approach the Bible, you you don't understand there's an underlying storyline to all of this. And the author, for instance, is going to argue that to read the Old Testament well, you need to understand that, that all of it is going to point to Jesus Christ. So when you start to understand the when question of when we are, you start to realize that this, this understanding of this storyline is going to help me engage Scripture well. And we're going, we're going to talk more about that as we unpack the book of Hebrews. And secondly, when you understand this when question, right, when we are in the storyline, I think it, it's also going to help you understand how we can get off track. Now, here's what I mean by this. 
as we read the book, it's going to become clear that arguably the majority of the recipients of this sermon are people who came to Christ out of Judaism. In fact, notice even how the author begins the book, right? Our ancestors. God spoke to our ancestors. He's talking to people from a Jewish perspective. But now what is happening is this. They become followers of Jesus, right? Now we understand God has spoken to us through Christ, but now under pressure, I think with disillusionment, some of the persecution, now they're in danger of drifting back to the old way of doing things. Now they're in danger from kind of moving here to moving back to, well, maybe we need to be dependent on the Old Testament sacrificial, sacrificial system. Maybe we just need to do the things just like we grew up. And so what you're going to see through this book is an ongoing argument that, no, you can't go back. Jesus is better than the Old Testament sacrificial system. Jesus is better than the Old Testament priesthood. Jesus is better than the Old Covenant. So there's going to be this continuing argument that, look, all of this stuff in your background was actually pointing to Jesus. And if it were pointing to Jesus and this is where we are in the storyline, don't go back. Now, you may say, well, what does that have to do with us, right? Because I'm pretty convinced as your pastor, I really don't have to worry about any of you drifting back into a reliance on the Old Testament sacrificial system, right? I I don't have to worry. Nobody's come to me. Can can we build an altar out in the parking lot? That has just never been a pastoral issue that I've had to deal with. But here's where this does relate to us. I realize their circumstances are very different. But it is the case that, like these people, under pressure, when we get disillusioned, frustrated, when we kind of lose the plot of following Jesus, we can fall into negative habits. We can fall into things from our past. Maybe I grew up in a really critical environment. And the truth is, when I lose the plot, I kind of slide back into engaging other people that way. Maybe, maybe <laughs> under pressure, when I lack energy and I just don't feel good about where life is going, maybe I've, I've developed certain negative coping mechanisms, coping mechanisms from, from drugs to alcohol to pornography to binge watching. And under pressure, I just kind of drift back into those unhealthy things. So as the author addresses these people, and at times it's going to feel very irrelevant to you because he's saying don't go back into these Jewish practices. But as he addresses those people, also hear him addressing you that there are, there are different ways you kind of go back when you lose the plot, different ways of thinking that are unhealthy, different ways of engaging others that are unhealthy, different ways of just approaching life that are unhealthy. Just recognize he's also speaking to you. So the author wants us to understand kind of the the win question, right? If you're not going to lose the the plot, you you need to understand where you are in kind of the storyline of what God is doing. But furthermore, and notice this is really the emphasis of this opening paragraph. Furthermore, you need to know who's at the center of the story, right? If you're not going to lose the plot, 
you need to know who is at the center of the story. And you'll notice the rest of this opening paragraph is really about Christ and what God is doing through Jesus Christ. Interestingly, if you read it, it's multiple sentences in English. <laughs> the first four verses of Hebrews are one verse. Or excuse me, it's one verse. It's one sentence in Greek. And the author, it's like he just keeps piling on. You know, you remember when you were told not to do run-on sentences? That's exactly what this author does. Clause after clause after clause. Because he wants you to see who Jesus Christ is. So very quickly, let's just walk through some of the descriptors this author uses in introducing us to Jesus. And I'll say this again. Some of the themes we're going to see in this opening paragraph are going to be fuller, uh, more fully developed as we go through the book because this author wants us to fix our eyes on Jesus so that we don't lose the plot. So with that in mind, let's look at some of these descriptors. First of all, right, we are told God has revealed himself through his son. And with this language, uh, the author really dives into the deep end of theology because with this language, the author is highlighting the nature of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One essence, three persons. And in this book, if you pay attention along the way, you're going to see how the author describes how each member of the Trinity is involved in what God is doing and how God is at work in this storyline as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Jesus is the Son uh, not only that, he is the heir of all things. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think in, in, in simple terms, Jesus is the rightful owner of everything. Now, as you think about that, just Jesus is the rightful owner of everything. Okay, let's unpack that. And unpacking that, I think we have to come to grips with both a sense of privilege as well as a sense of responsibility. Then we begin with the responsibility. In saying Jesus is heir of all things, it is a reminder to us that whether we realize it or not, we, we are not owners of the things in our lives. We are stewards. And I realize that's not a term we use normally, so maybe a, a, a more natural term to use is we are managers of the resources in our lives. Our abilities, our finances, our time, our opportunities. As a father of Jesus, I'm to understand, you know, these aren't mine simply to use as if I'm the ultimate authority. These aren't mine to use simply at my own whim. Rather, I'm, I'm a manager. And with that comes the responsibility to manage these resources in a manner that reflects this storyline. In a manner that really reflects the character and the priorities of the owner. So when you take seriously this whole idea that Jesus is heir, there's, there is a responsibility here. But I think there's also a privilege. 
Because here's what's fascinating. Even as the author here speaks of Jesus as the heir of all things, later on he will talk about us as heirs of the eternal promises. And it's like he, I, I think when you put these themes together, it's like he's saying, look, Jesus is the heir of all things, and, and, and in his inheritance you have been brought into that. So that you are now part of this bigger story of what God is doing. And you are a recipient of his promises. And I think there's tremendous privilege that comes with that. <laughs> Let me explain it this way, maybe. So a few years ago, I was in a board meeting with about seven or eight other people. Uh, we were meeting in this beautiful office complex in Houston. And some of us knew one another as we were serving together. Other people were kind of new to the group. And, and so there were, I don't know, seven or eight people in the room. And we're going around the room giving personal updates and also introducing ourselves. So we go around the room, we kind of start on the other side of this big table, and we get to the guy who is seated immediately to my right. And he tells us, you know, he didn't really know many of us, and so he's giving us a little background who he is, what he's, what he, you know, what he's doing. Very distinguished looking guy, and um, finally he talks about his work. And he kind of explains it in some complex detail, and then he, he says something like this. He said, to put it in simple terms, here's what I do. And he said these words. He said, I manage a portfolio of a little over $90 billion in commercial real estate. And he said that, and then it's my turn. <laughs> and you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking, well, I manage almost an acre where my house sits. <laughs> right? I, think, I still remember, I did not like following that guy. Because somehow after hearing about his life, his responsibilities, my life just seemed a little more pint-sized and puny. Maybe you've had experiences like that too. But you see, when, when I understand myself in relation to the fact that Christ is heir of all things, what that means is that my life, whatever the level of, of, of responsibility, engagement, whatever that looks like, is actually part of something much bigger. My life, no matter how large or small it may seem, is, is actually woven into these deep and rich eternal promises that are connected to the fact that Christ is the heir of all things. And I think that just changes the way you approach life. So Jesus is the son. He is the heir of all things. And you might say, well, why does he get to be the heir of all things? Well, the author also answers that question by saying Jesus is the creator and the sustainer. Right? He's the creator and the sustainer. Think about the last time, maybe a summer night. Maybe you were on a camping trip. Maybe you just went outside, but you looked into the stars and the sky was bright and clear. And maybe, you know, minimal light pollution, so they're just flickering in front of you, and maybe you've had that moment where you've, you just caught yourself just kind of gazing into the heavens, just at the wonder of what's above you. And as you think about that moment, or the next time you're standing in one of those moments, remember what, what the author of Hebrews says. He says, Christ is sustaining this by his powerful word. And interestingly, the term used of word here in Hebrews is only used of God. Right? It's God, and wow, just all that in front of me is being sustained by his word. 
And the question is, if he can sustain these immeasurable galaxies in front of me by the power of his word, can he sustain my life as well? Can he sustain me through those moments, those seasons, those issues where life just seems to be overwhelming? The author is saying, look, I want you to see him as sustainer and creator. Let's continue. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. In other words, when you see Jesus, you are seeing God. Furthermore, he, right, he's the one who deals with sin. And, and the author is going to come back to this theme over and over again, right? He has made purification for our sin. I was in a conversation recently with a dad, and, you know, we were just talking about the, kind of the, the, the excitement, but the weightiness at times of being a parent, of being a father. And at one point, I just kind of looked to him, and he's thinking about, you know, what are the next seasons going to look like? I just kind of look at him and kind of Mr. Encouragement. I just want him to know, hey, guess what? You're going to mess up. Right? Trust me on the, you're not going to get it all right. And we had that conversation. And there are going to be times you need to just go to your kids and just explain, hey, look, I blew it. I'm sorry. You're going to have to do that. Now, I realize that can sound like just a really negative conversation. But I think it was a great conversation to have because, you see, we, we as followers of Jesus can have these kinds of conversations because we are people related to the one who is now dealing with our sin. I realize sometimes church seems like the last place you can talk about your stuff. But it should be the first place where we can actually have those conversations, shouldn't it? Because we gather, we come together, we are brought together by the one who has dealt with that once and for all, right? This is why the author is going to say later, I want you to come boldly to the throne of grace because he is the one who deals with sin. Then he is described as the one seated in heaven. And when you see this reference of Jesus kind of seated at the right hand, I think among other things, this is a reference to Jesus' kingly role. And again, this will be a theme that, that we will encounter at different points in this book. It is an allusion to Psalm 110, a royal psalm in the Psalms. And as we go through the book, you will discover that that psalm is very important to this author. That psalm plays a ma major role in Hebrews. And finally, he is superior to the angels. And uh, that will actually get us into the next part of the book, so I'll talk about that more next week. So notice what this author is doing. And again, as I said, it's one sentence in Greek, one clause after another. It's like, Jesus is this, and, and Jesus is that. And it's almost, like, it's almost like he's taking us by the hand and says, look I, want you, look, I want you to look at Jesus from this angle. Okay, okay. Now, now I want you to move over here. And I, I want you to make, okay, you got that? Okay, now I want you to move over here. And in different ways, he's going to come back to these themes because he wants us to see Jesus in his fullness. I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus. But to do that well, you've you kind of got to walk around and you've got to see these different realities of who Christ is and what he is doing. 
Because see, unfortunately, sometimes I think we, we have a vision of Christ, but it becomes diminished. Maybe I just see Christ as the, the one who, <laughs> he's just the one who deals with sin. But I don't see him as heir of all things. I don't see him as the one who's ruling such that I have an ongoing role to play. So I'm just kind of comfortable with the way life is because you know what? I'm going to heaven when I die. But that flows out of a diminished view of who Christ is. Or maybe I kind of see this sense of oh, Jesus is on throne. He's going to one day rule in, in an ultimate way. And I get that. But, but I don't realize he's, he's sustaining life all along the way. So it kind of feels like it's this distant reality that has a disconnect with my everyday experience. And if, I, if that's all I see, it's a, it's a diminished view of God. So the author is saying, look, I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus. I want you to see him through for who he really is. And then he's going to walk us through different themes as we go through this book. And he's going to say, don't lose the plot. Keep moving forward. As we go through this book, um, I really want to encourage you to get into Scripture on your own. Again, as we've been talking about spiritual rhythms right now, the, our focus in terms of spiritual rhythms is encouraging you to get into Scripture. And we've got a couple of resources to help you do that. Starting today, we have these uh, spiritual rhythm cards available. You can pick one up as you leave on Scripture. And I'd really encourage you in some way to get into Hebrews on your own. I realize some of you are in other kind of reading plans. And, and so if, that, if you're, in, you're really into that, I don't want to interrupt that. But I just encourage you, to, if you could, to be a part of what we're doing in Hebrews. And so the cards go week by week. And there are, you know, just a couple of passages for you to read, uh, simple questions. For those of you in families, uh, there's a, a verse highlighted in the back, and maybe like <laughs> Bob mentioned, your, your family can talk about this, just kind of have a conversation about what this particular verse means that we've highlighted. If you'd like to go deeper, we're also making available a devotional guide as we go through this week by week that you will find at hfcinfo.com. And the cards as well as the devotional guide are just encouraging you to, to get into these passages at three different times during the week so that that you can really see what this author is saying about the wonder of Jesus Christ. So as we get started, I, I want to I pray for us. I want to pray for you. But before I do that, I want to remind you of one scene from the Chronicles of Narnia. Some of you have read the books. Maybe you've read it with your kids. Maybe some of you are reading it as a family now. And I, this is a scene, I think, from Prince Caspian. And it's a scene where Lucy, a young girl, encounters Aslan. Now, throughout the Chronicles, Aslan is this mighty lion, and he really is a figure of Jesus Christ in the story. And it's, in this scene, Lucy encounters him, and it's, it's been a long time since she's seen him, so she runs up to him, she hugs him, she buries her face in his huge mane, and she looks at him and says, Aslan, you are bigger. And he says, that's because you're older. And again, she hasn't seen him for a while. She's confused, somewhat, you know, disoriented a little bit. And she asks again, and 
aren't you bigger? And he goes, I am not. And that's followed by this line. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And in a real sense, (laughs) I think that's the heart of the author of Hebrews. I'm writing this so that you can fix your eyes on Jesus, so that you can just grow in your understanding of who he is and what he's done. And that as a result, your your vision, your understanding, your perception of Christ will grow bigger. And you'll keep moving forward. With that in mind, let me pray for us. Father, we come to this, this amazing book in the pages of Scripture. It is so theologically rich. It is so filled with references to other parts of Scripture. It's so multifaceted in its depiction of the person and work of Christ. And Father, sometimes it can even, because of that, just be overwhelming. We can get lost in some of the details, and and I pray that wouldn't happen to us. But Father, as we begin this journey at the beginning of the year through this book, I do pray that just the wonder and the awe associated with Christ would just grow bigger. Father, as we gather and meet together as a church family, we bring all sorts of of different decisions and issues, complexities, opportunities into this space. And in the midst of all that's going on in our lives, may we hear the invitation to fix our eyes on Jesus and keep moving forward. I pray for that for us as a church community as we begin this new year. And I pray for that individually as followers of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Again, thanks, thanks for uh, joining us this morning. As you leave, I'm going to encourage you to get, a, you know, get one of the sets of these cards. And also, we're going to have members of our prayer team. We're going to be here at the front if we can pray with you as we start this journey. Uh, we'd love the opportunity to do that. So now, as we begin working our way through Hebrews, would you hear the invitation, the challenge of this author? As you start this new year, fix your eyes on Jesus and keep moving forward. Amen.